0: All right, I'll round everybody up here this morning and we'll get started with prayer. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we can gather together in freedom to learn more about who you are and to learn about your glorious word. And we do pray, Heavenly Father, today as we look into the relationship of the law and the gospel, that you would help us to think well, that we would understand these texts and understand what we have in Christ, that we would be people who are motivated never to go back never to attempt works, either in our justification or in our sanctification, Lord, that you would enable us to remember that salvation from first to last is by faith in you, that we would not depart from Christ. So we pray that you would enable us to think well upon your text. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning, as you can see, we're not in the book of Revelation. Uh, We will be returning to that. Chapter 4 will be inside the throne room at that point. And remember, chapter 4 goes all the way to 22, looking into the future events. But we're going to be taking a look now at the Law and the Gospel, kind of an excursus series, probably two, at least two, but perhaps three parts to this series. Now, the reason I want to take a look at the Law and the Gospel, the relationship between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant, is because there has been division in our church over that. And I'll be very honest. There has been accusations out there that Bob and I are somehow antinomian, that means against the law, and I'll be showing you that that's not true. We believe that we are under the law of Christ. Christ is the new lawgiver, he is the mediator of the new covenant, and by being under the new covenant, we are missing nothing. And so in part one, I'm going to be proving to you this morning that the Mosaic covenant in its entirety has been terminated and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the heavy lift that we have to do here this morning. And we're going to look at much evidence in both the Old and the New Testament to prove that. Part two, we're going to be looking at the purpose of the law for the believer. What role, if any, does the Mosaic law have for a believer in the New Covenant? And we'll be exploring that. And I think many people who have held to creeds uh, perhaps have held dear the Westminster Confession and that somehow the law is integral to sanctification, we'll be surprised as to what the apostles say that the law of Moses is capable of doing and the purpose for the Mosaic law. So we'll be exploring that in part two. But this morning we have to do the heavy lift. I'm going to show you our agenda. First of all, we're going to be examining the different views regarding the relationship between the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant. So I'm going to show you a spectrum of different views. And it's not designed to be exhaustive. We can't hit every single church group. I'm not going to get into the Anglicans and um, every sort of church group. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, what? Um, But I'll give you a good representative sample of the different views, and then I'll show you what we believe here as elders at Gospel of Grace. Second, we'll examine passages that predict the fulfillment and termination of the Old Testament. And you'll see passages in both the Old and the New. The Old Testament predicted that the Mosaic Law as a covenant, would be done away with. And the New Testament writers teach the same thing. Third, we'll examine what aspects of the Mosaic Law were established. Why? Because some claim today that there are elements of the Mosaic Law that are still valid for the Christian. And we'll put the burden of proof on them to say what passages explicitly or even implicitly teach such a doctrine will show that the mosaic covenant in its entirety has been fulfilled and terminated in Christ. So with that, let me turn to different views. Now again, I can't show every single view that people have had over the centuries, but I want to show you kind of a representative spectrum of people in their view regarding the relationship of the mosaic covenant to the New Testament Christian. And the first view I want to show you is the reformed view. The view, as I call it non-theonomic. I'll explain that in, when I get to number two. But this reform view would be very consistent with those who hold to the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession, remember, they believe that the law was broken into three different parts. The moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. And so they believe that the Mosaic Law is broken into civil, ceremonial, and moral components. The moral law, they claim, remains forever. So this would be a a simple way of explaining what this view is. It would be the Ten Commandments view. Now, right at the outset, let me just throw this out there. Do we really have to obey all the Ten Commandments? Isn't there a law called Sabbath-keeping? And remember, if you were an Israelite and you didn't keep Sabbath on Saturday, you were a covenant-breaker. Well, we know from Hebrews 4 and Colossians 2.16 that truth Sabbath rest is found in Christ. So right away that 10 commandments has to be amended. Now remember this view says that the whole law can be broken into different components. We're going to get into this more fully later, but think about this passage Galatians 5:3. Galatians 5:3 Paul says, "I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that would be part of the law, the ceremonial law in in their definition. And he says, that if one receives circumcision, he is under obligation to keep the whole law. So notice Paul, the apostle, inspired by the Spirit, sees the law as a whole. We'll see the same thing again in James chapter 2, verse 10. So that's the reform view. Now, let me show you another reform view. Now, notice this one's called the- Theonomic. Now, Theonomic comes from two words just put together, theos, the Greek noun for God, and namas, which is law. This is the law of God view. And particular, what they want to do, the people who hold to this view, is they want to see the Mosaic Covenant, at least portions of it, extended not only to the church, so you and I would be under portions of it, but it would also, in their mind, it's supposed to be extended to the civil magistrates. And so they want to see government under the Mosaic Law as well. In fact, Greg Bonson, he advocates that, and this is from page 445 of his Christian Ethics. It says Theonomy and Christian Ethics. Greg Bonson, one of its its leading proponents, he advocates that homosexuals, kidnappers, rapists, and adulterers should be executed for their sin. And so if someone was a homosexual, they would be put to death just like they were under the Old Covenant. All right. Now, let me just read the slide here. They believe, again, the civil and moral law. Remember the three aspects? The moral, civil, ceremonial. Well, they believe two of those aspects are still valid. The civil and moral law should still be used today as a standard for church and state. Does everybody follow that? So now they're going further, notice, than the view above. The people who hold to the Reformed tradition above only believe that the moral law is still binding. Now, the area of agreement between these two was that they believe that the law can be broken into three different parts. And again, I'll be showing you later, I don't think that that's valid. Okay, now, let me show you another view. This would be the dispensational view. And I'll be honest, I have a lot in common with this, although it's not completely my view. The dispensational view would say that the Mosaic Law is terminated in its entirety by the New Covenant. But there's a couple of caveats that I would make. A, This is now, by the way, as I mentioned dispensational view, there's many different forms of dispensationalism. I'm talking about traditional dispensationalism from about 150 years ago. They would see little continuity between the Mosaic law and the new covenant. I would say, no, there is some continuity there. In other words, murder was wrong under the old covenant, still wrong today, even though we're under the law of Christ. So I would see more continuity than they would. And they see the issue as being primarily one of timing. Now, I agree that there's a timing issue. In fact, you'll see that in Galatians 3 today in our slides. But it's more than just timing. I would say that it's also an issue of fulfillment. The reason why the Mosaic Law is done is because it has been fulfilled in Christ, and it's time for it to be done away. So the view that I would hold to, and I know Bob would affirm this, and Adam and uh, the elders here at Gospel of Grace, Mike, there he is, we would affirm well, what I would say is a moder- modified Lutheran view. Now, that may sound kind of shocking, but a good scholar to look at is a man named Douglas Moo. Let me show you a book. It's called Five Views of the Law and the Gospel. All, there's actually another view that's represented. Notice I have four. This is about five views. But all these views would be delineated in this book, and a person who holds to a view, they write a whole letter, and then all of the other guys who hold the different views, they critique it. And in my humble opinion, I think Douglas Moo does the best job of representing the biblical data. Douglas Moo does a dynamite job in showing what the Bible actually says. I think it's devastating. Yeah, Barb. his last name. Douglas Moo, it's M um, O O. yep. Just think of a cow. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to. <laughs> yep, Moo, yep. So, that's not designed, to, by the way, to be insulting to him. He's a wonderful scholar, so. Yeah, so that would be the view. Now, listen to this. The modified Lutheran view, the Mosaic Law is terminated, just like the dispensationalists believed, but it's also fulfilled. Now, as I say that, realize most dispensationalists today would affirm the same thing, but I'm talking about earlier traditional dispensationalism. So the Mosaic Law is terminated and fulfilled in its entirety by the New Covenant. A, notice how it differs from dispensational view above. There's more continuity in this view. There's many things that were immoral under the Old Covenant that are still immoral today under the law of Christ. But it's the entirety of the Mosaic Covenant that's been done away with. We're under the law of Christ. And as you'll see later, I'll point this sheet out. Everyone have this sheet? You're going to see, and this is just a representative sample of the commandments that we have in the New Testament from being under the law of Christ. As you will see, we're not missing anything. We're not antinomian. The call and the label of Bob and I or Mike or anyone else here at Gospel of Grace as being antinomian is a form of slander based on ignorance. People who don't understand that being under the law of Christ is tremendously important. And we're not missing anything by being under the law of Christ, the very law of our God. So the modifying Lutheran view, to me the strengths of it, it says the whole Mosaic covenant has been done away with, and we are now under the law of Christ. Is there some continuity? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Is it because Christ fulfilled it? Oh, yes. But it was also time. In the, remember, Christ came in the fullness of time, and when he came, the Mosaic Law was done away with. So that's the view. Yeah. Is that all the denominations of Lutheran? Or that- no, in fact, um, saying that it's modified Lutheran is important because even Douglas Moo would, rep- would say um, Lutherans don't have quite that view. They see it more of a law gospel grace works issue than they do a covenant issue so he works with the covenant issue more Um, but i i think luther was strong in this and by the way that's why bob numerous times will cite luther in galatians luther did a bang-up job in the book of galatians he saw the issue between the mosaic covenant and the new covenant very clearly but that's why it's called a modified lutheran view yep Good question. Well, let me keep going then. What I want to do is I want to start showing you the Mosaic Covenant contrasted with the other covenants. We want to begin by showing you that there is a difference inherently between the unconditional covenants that God made with his people and the Mosaic Covenant. So let me begin with the Abrahamic Covenant. The Abrahamic Covenant, the big term you want to remember here, it was made unilaterally by God. Remember when God cuts the covenant with Abraham, who alone walks the blood path? God does. Abraham's asleep. Now remember the rich symbology of walking the blood path. You usually would have two parties. One party would walk the blood path in a covenant treaty like this, and they would say, if I go against my word, may what happened to this animal happen to me. And then the other party would do the same thing. But notice in Genesis 15... Abraham's asleep. So God alone is the one who is saying, in effect, if I go against my word, may what happened to this animal happen to me. Now, it reminds me too of a passage in Hebrews 6:13. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews said. He said for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore the oath by himself. Okay, so this is a unilateral covenant. Now, I want to get to the Mosaic Covenant. Remember, Paul argues that, and we'll see this in Galatians 3, that this covenant of promise, the Abrahamic Covenant, was 430 years prior to the giving of the law. And he argues, therefore, that the law can't nullify the promise that God made by grace alone. All right? But 430 years later, we end up having the Mosaic Covenant. I notice the big change here is this is a bilateral covenant by bi- meaning two there's two parties and one of the evidences that I think you can see in the covenant itself its initiation that it is bilateral is notice the people the people were sprinkled with the blood too. Okay so remember in Exodus 24 eight Moses takes the blood of the animal and he sprinkles it upon their, on the people and so God has his set of obligations in the Mosaic covenant and the people have theirs. Alright? Now, what's interesting is the Mosaic Covenant happens in the backdrop where the Hittite Empire, they were very large at one time. They used to have kings that would run roughshod over other nations, and then they would enter into treaties. And what the king would do of this Hittite Empire is he would say, look, you're my vassals, you're my people, and I will take care of you even though I took you over, but we're going to make a covenant. And in this covenant, I promise to be benevolent to you, but you have these obligations. And then he would list them out. What's very interesting is the Mosaic Covenant, as it's alluded to in Scripture, follows the same formula. Now, why is that important? Because, for instance, in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 24, the decree by the Lord is that this Mosaic Covenant is an eternal covenant. Well, very interestingly, in the Hittite Covenant Treaty, they called a suzerainty vassal covenant covenant. Those covenants were designed to be eternal as well, but with one caveat. They were eternal as long as both sides were faithful to the covenant. That has to be applied to the Mosaic covenant. It's a bilateral. Now, was God faithful to the Mosaic covenant? Oh, absolutely. But was Israel? No. Let me cite a couple of passages Hosea 6, 6 through 7. The Lord says, he said, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He says, but like Adam, he's talking about Israel, he says, they have transgressed the covenant. They have dealt treacherously against me. Hosea 8.1, he says, put the trumpet to your lips. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against Yahweh because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against me. So the eternal nature of that covenant, it certainly is eternal as long as both sides live up to their end of the bargain. But Israel never did. Now, let's fast forward to the New Covenant. The New Covenant, again, is a unilateral covenant. Who alone walks the blood path? Do you and I add anything to the shed blood of Christ? No. Jesus says, Bob talked about this at the Lord's Supper. It was a wonderful Sunday school. If you haven't heard it, please pull that up. Matthew 26 Jesus walks the blood path alone. He says this is the blood of the new covenant. It's his blood. And so this is also a unilateral covenant. And what I want you to understand is it's really a fulfillment. If I get my cursor here to work, there it is. This is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And so notice these are both unilateral. The bilateral one has been done away with. That's going to be our claim. Why? Why? Is because it was inherently weak because it was dependent upon human ability. Okay? Now, let's move on then to key texts about the cessation of the Old Testament. I want to begin with the Old Testament itself. I'm going to show you that the Mosaic Covenant, and I, what I mean by that is really the law and the prophets foretold of its cessation. I want to begin in Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is a very important passage because what it begs for, I think, is not only a new prophet, and there's many that come from Israel that are in a long line of succession that lead to Christ, but in particular, in Deuteronomy 18, it looks forward to a new mediator. And that's something that I think is unique here in Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18:15 18, through 19, it says, "...the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen you shall listen to him." Verse 16, he says, This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. Now, by the way, in verse 17, the Lord goes on to say, You have spoken well. Verse 18, he says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him, It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Now, notice, first of all, what's highlighted in red. Moses here is predicting that there would be a prophet like him that would arise. And so we see, certainly, through the Old Testament, there are a series of prophets that come. And in a sense, they are foreshadowing of the ultimate prophet to come. But notice the specific prophet that's being foretold in this specific passage, is more than just a prophet. He's also a mediator. Now, where do I get that? Well, notice Moses adds something interesting, I think, here in verse 16. He says, let me not hear again. Now, he's recounting what the people said at Mount Sinai. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 20. They said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see his great fire anymore, or I will die. So they saw God and his theophany, the smoke, the sounds, the the, the claps of lightning, the thunder. They saw these things at Sinai and they were terrified. And so remember, there's really two different kinds of access to God. There is immediate access to God. In a sense, that's what Moses had. He spoke to God like a friend. You and I, if we, had, we have immediate access to one another, we can talk directly. But what the people are begging for here is not immediate access to God. They're afraid of that. They want a mediated access. So not immediate. They want mediated access. What are they asking for? They're asking for a mediator, aren't they? Who is that mediator? Well, that's Moses, isn't he? He's the mediator of the Old Covenant. So, notice here then what's being asked for in this passage about a prophet who would come in the future from the countrymen of Israel. It's not just a prophet, but it's also a mediator. That's what's being expected. Now, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Bob has mentioned this quite often in our radio programs. You probably have, will remember that. We've talked about this. What do you think? Um, Three or four times in the last five sessions, I think. Mark chapter 9.
1: Yeah, because it's, it really shows that they're not to look to Moses or make a new tent of meeting for Moses or Elijah. That's right. But God himself is saying, here, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. He's the lawgiver, right. like Moses was. But listen to him. Amen. And Moses disappears. Amen. And so that's a prophetic action. It's very significant. And some people take that to mean nothing and say we're still under Moses.
0: Right, right. Yeah, so well said, Bob. So here's Mark 9. We'll just read what Bob was alluding to. Mark 9, verses 4 through 8. So they're up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it says, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses. Let's just stop there. Moses goes to Mount Sinai. He is a mediator a law, uh, of the law. He's a mediator of the Mosaic Covenant, and he's a prophet. But you also have Elijah. Elijah also representing the prophets. And so you really have, in a sense, testimony now from two witnesses. Amen. Right? Remember how important that is? You have two witnesses that are testifying to who Christ is, so that everything would be established, as it says in Deuteronomy, by two witnesses by the law and the prophets. So it says, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed. So now you have a theophany. A theophany just like that had happened at Sinai when the people asked For a mediator, right? It says, Then a cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Verse 8, All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Who is the one who speaks for God uniquely? Jesus does. Jesus is the lawgiver and the mediator of the new covenant. That's what's being shown here. Now, remember... We also have here, notice in Deuteronomy 18, 19, on the bottom of the text here, I have it bolded. It says, I myself will required of him. If you don't listen to this new mediator, Moses is saying, it'll be required of you. Jesus himself said in John 12, 48, this is that which will judge you on the last day. The very words that I have spoken will be your judge. He's the lawgiver. And this same Jesus also says, remember in Matthew 10:40. Whoever receives his apostles receives him. So Christ and the apostles are depicted then as the new lawgivers. They're the ones who are the lawgivers under the new covenant. Okay, all of that I think is predicted here in Deuteronomy 18. Now, for the sake of time, I want to keep moving on. I want to come to the prophets. And by the way, I'm just showing you a snidbit, a little tiny fraction of the different passages that speak to this hosea 2:18, isaiah 61 8 many many passages speak to the promise that there would be a new covenant but i want to come to one that's very famous that you've all read before i'm sure jeremiah 31 jeremiah 31 31 through 33 the lord says this through his prophet he says behold days are coming declares the lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So let's stop there. Notice he's proclaiming this is going to be a new covenant. All right? And then he says in verse 32, it's not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So let's stop there. What covenant, exactly, what covenant is he referring to? He's obviously saying it's not going to be like the Mosaic covenant because that was the covenant that he made as he brought them out of Egypt. Now, what he's going to go on to say, and when you get into verse 33, he's he's going to show you how it's different. But let's continue reading. He says, my covenant, again, he's referring to the Mosaic covenant here, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Verse 33, he says, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put, now here's the difference in blue, i will put my law within them and on their heart i will write it and i will be their god and they shall be my people notice what i have highlighted in blue he says i will put my law within them and on their heart the primary problem with the mosaic covenant was not that the law in of itself was somehow unholy or not good the problem was human inability so think when you have the mosaic covenant in play with humanity there's always an interplay with the law and the flesh. And because you have fleshly human beings who have depravity, they cannot do what the law requires. That's the problem. And so what he's promising here in this text is a promise that stemmed all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, which is where? That's the Pentateuch. Okay, that's the very beginning. And in the Pentateuch, remember, God had promised that one day he would circumcise their heart. And when he circumcised their heart, he would finally enable them to do what humanly was impossible because of their sin nature. And so that was the fatal flaw of the Mosaic Covenant is that human weakness made it impossible to obey. And so what I want to do on this next slide then is I want to play off of that. The law couldn't do what the future spirit will do in the new covenant. So I'm going to show you the need for the Holy Spirit. So, think about it this way. At the first Pentecost, remember the first Pentecost, 50 days basically after Passover? You have Israel come to Sinai and you have the giving of the law. And at the giving of the law, what happens? Well, the people can't see Moses anymore. Aaron ends up building them a golden calf. They fall right into idolatry. Why? Because they live by sight, not by faith. They become mystics. They want to see something, they want to have an experience. They're not going to be content with some God that they can't see and a mediator they can't see. So they build a golden calf at the giving of the law. And what happens is 3,000 end up dying. Remember the Levites hand out the, was it the swords? They end up hacking each other. 3,000 die. Exodus 32, 28. It says, so the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. 3,000 perish. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that when we come to the Pentecost, where the new in the New Testament, where the Holy Spirit is poured out, you have three thousand that come to eternal life. Is there any word of how many people are in the Jewish faith at that time? We we you know, I don't know. We'd have to look at the data. I don't as far as the entire nation. Three thousand doesn't seem like a lot when we live in towns full of two hundred and fifty thousand people. Sure. I think there were more than that. Um, There are numbers that are given, but I I don't know what they are. So, yeah, sorry. Yeah, but I think the the greater point, though, is look at Acts 2.41. This is the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. It says, So then, those who had received his word were baptized, so they received the gospel, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So what seems to be the point here, I think, if you compare these two narratives, is what the law couldn't do because of human inability when the Spirit is given, then you have the ability for people to really believe. It's a fulfillment of all the promises that God had made about the new covenant. And that is on display, I think, when we see that contrast. Now, why again could the law not do what the Holy Spirit can do? Well, Paul says, Romans 8, verse 3, he says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. So let's stop there. What's the problem? Is it the law or is it us? It's us. But you see, the law in human sinful flesh, they don't mix. It's oil and water. We can't do what the law requires. And so he says, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. So this is by grace, completely, this new system. It is unilateral, isn't it? All by his grace, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, it goes on, by the way, in verse four, he says, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, the old system, but according to the spirit. The spirit enables us to do what the law never could. So we have an inherently better covenant, don't we? And that's the whole argument that the writer of Hebrews makes right now. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans seven, verse eight. Romans chapter 7, verse 8, I want you to see, this is a foreshadowing of what we'll come to in part 2. We're going to focus on the purpose of the law, specifically the Mosaic law for the believer. And I'm going to be showing you that some of the claims and some of the creeds and some of the Reformed tradition don't line up with what the scriptures are saying. All right, now, Romans 7, 8, what does Paul say that the law does he says but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind for apart from the law sin is dead and so one of the arguments that Paul makes is not only does this law reveal sin but it incites sin it's the old adage where you tell your boy not to steal out of the cookie jar and he never thought of that before (laughs) He says, you know, there's cookies in there. Yeah, Christy. Oops, hold on. We'll... I just had a note from a previous um, sermon or something that, that taking opportunity um, refers to setting up a base of operations. We were just going to mention that. Yes. Astute, astute, astute listener. <laughs> Free coffee for Christy. Yeah, exactly. Free coffee. <laughs> Astute Listening Award. Yes, exactly. The term for opportunity is a base camp. So the law, or I should say sin, used the law as a base camp. So think in the military, they have base camps. They'll set up forward operating bases so that they can launch attacks against the enemy. The depiction here is the law was used in that way. Exactly right. And that comes, Bob, from Leon Morris, doesn't it, And his pillar commentary? When I
1: first saw that, uh, teaching through... Romans, one of the many times that I did. Yeah. It, it's very enlightening. That same term for base of operations is used elsewhere, including in Galatians. Yes. And so there's an attack launched against us. Wow. they can only be warded off by the blood of Jesus and the truth of the gospel.
0: Amen. Wow. Thank you. So, my whole point on this slide then, you see the need for the Holy Spirit, you see the need for a new covenant because the law was weak when it operated with our sinful condition. Now, is the law the problem? No, it's holy. It's good, noble, righteous. The problem is us. So we needed a new covenant. We needed the Holy Spirit. So now what I want to do now is I want to transition to start showing you some New Testament texts that show that the Mosaic covenant has ceased. It's been fulfilled, and it has also been terminated in Christ. Now, I'm going to show you a passage here from Galatians chapter 3. And I want to set the stage for you. Remember in Galatians 3, 15 through 17, Paul makes an analogy. And he's going to make an analogy between the Abrahamic covenant and the law of Moses that came later. And the analogy that he makes is with a human covenant. Now, he's just speaking normally. He says, normally, if you have a human covenant, you can't change its condition. The reason Paul says that, he's pointing out When God made a covenant with Abraham 400 years prior to the Mosaic law coming, you don't change its condition when the law comes. You don't change a covenant. God made the covenant, and he's not going to change it. So the point is, the law that came 400 years after the Abrahamic covenant doesn't nullify the promise that salvation is by grace, by the promise of God. Well, then in verses 18 through 19, he continues. He says, for if the inheritance is based on law... It is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Let's stop there. When was the promise? It was given to Abraham, and Abraham was justified by faith, right? Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, he believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Paul's argument is salvation was by faith. That came 430 years prior to the law. Then he says, why the law then? It was added to... Because of transgressions. Now let's stop there. What does Paul mean that the law was added because of transgressions? Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Romans 5, 20 fills us in on this concept of what Paul means that the law was added because of transgressions. Romans 5, 20 Remember, that's in that little prickaby about how we were all made sinners through Adam and by Adam. But in Christ, we'll all be made righteous. So in here in Romans 5.20, Paul says the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, let's stop there for just a moment. We have been under attack saying, you know, you're not using the Mosaic law enough to sanctify people under the new covenant. Well, does Paul say that the purpose of the Mosaic law is to sanctify believers under the new covenant? Well, he said that it increases sin. He says that it reveals sin. And we'll find out from 1 Timothy 1 that the lawful use is for those who are unrighteous, not the righteous. But what in the world is the attack about if Paul is saying something different than the creeds are saying. Brothers and sisters, we have to go by the scriptures. The purpose of the law was to increase sin. So just again, as you take a diamond and the diamond looks so much more brilliant against the dark backdrop of velvet, when the gospel came in the background of the darkness of sin that the law had revealed, it shines all the more brilliantly. And that's the point that Paul is laying out here. That's why It came in. It was because of transgressions. And notice he says, having been ordained through angels by agency of a mediator. Let's stop there. The mediator, he's talking about Moses, was the mediator of the old covenant. Now think about this. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2, Paul says of Israel, they were baptized into Moses. They were baptized through the Red Sea into Moses. They identified with Moses. He was the mediator of the old covenant. How many in here were baptized into Moses? Anyone? No, you were baptized into Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. You're with him. So, what's the nonsense about going back? Why would we go back to the old mediator, the old covenant? We're with Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is very important that we realize that. And now notice the, un, the argument that he makes. Here's the timing argument. It's until, now he's talking about the law, it was until the seed would come. Who's the seed? Go all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the very first promise of the entire Bible. The seed of the woman's going to come and crush the serpent. And the seed is the Messiah. Remember the pronoun even, who, Who is he? Remember I said he is she? It sounds like a who's on first, Abbot and Costello routine. (laughs) The Hebrew pronoun for he is who. And that's actually there in the text. He will crush the serpent's head. It's one man that would come. And in the rest of the Old Testament, we see it's going to come from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah. The seed is coming. And so the law would come until the seed would come that was promised where? At the Abrahamic covenant. And so there was a transitional nature, Paul's arguing, to the law itself it was for a time and so now that that time has expired why go back and that's what he says it was until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made Abraham believed that promise it was credited in his righteousness the law came as a custodian a tutor until the coming of the Messiah and so it's a timing issue you don't go back in fact Paul goes on to say this very thing Verses 23 through 25, he says, But before, notice the timing issue. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, so now he's coming to a conclusion, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Here's the purpose. So that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Notice this reference to a tutor. A tutor. The term tutor there comes from the Greek term pedagogos, and there's been a lot of discussion and ink spilled about this. Real succinctly, what is a pedagogos? Well, in the Greco-Roman world, for lack of better, it was like a custodian or a counselor, a tutor, as it were, who was responsible for school-aged children until they came of age. Oftentimes, a wealthy family would hire them or they would have them on retainer for a period until the children were old enough. Now, here's the debate that scholars wrestle with. Is the tutor some gentle, kindly uh, person who does instruction so that the person has, you know, gradual moral improvement and all of a sudden they attain to the level of being saved by faith? No. But we have to also guard ourselves against the opposite view of the tutor that they were necessarily harsh and mean-spirited. In that time period, you had both. Just like some of you remember teachers that you liked and that you disliked, I don't think our argument should hinge on whether the tutor was gracious or that he was mean-spirited and harsh. The issue here in the text is one of timing. And so I want to show you that. Notice, here's how I think we should think of it in our mind. The pedagogos was a steward for a time. Because that's the argument Paul makes. He says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Bob and I were doing radio, and he made a great example. He said, You know, when you had to go um, in Bob's day, if you had to see the guidance counselor in high school, you were in trouble. But you're only under the guidance counselor as long as you're in high school. So if you get your Ph.D. in physics or uh, a degree somewhere and you have a career going, do you ever go back to your guidance counselor? No. That was only for a time. I never went to my guidance counselor. I think I always was hauled into the principal. But but, uh, anyway, the same principle applies. You don't go back. It was an issue of time. All right? Do you want to go back? to something that you were engaged in in childhood when you're an adult? No, so why would we go back to the tutor when we're in Christ? It was for a time. Okay, now let me show you some other texts here that we have to wrestle with. Romans 10, 3 through 4. This passage is important because it declares the end of the law, but there's some nuances we want to think about in the text. Romans 10, 3 through 4. Remember, Paul is talking just prior to this that the Israelites had missed messianic salvation, he says, oh, yes, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And so right away, Paul is saying, whatever type of salvation that they had, it certainly wasn't the kind that God had revealed. It was a homemade righteousness in every way. They had zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, meaning according to what God had revealed. Verse 3, then he says, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. So let's stop there. What he's saying is these Israelite rascals, they're trying to establish their own righteousness. It had nothing to do with what God was revealing. They did not, he says, subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now here we have an explanatory four. He says, for Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now let's stop there. Notice that Christ is the end of the law for those who what? For those who have the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So these are people who understand what God's word has said and when they obeyed, that is they believed the gospel, which by the way is a form of obedience, we're commanded to believe the gospel. Remember the first work that we are to do is to believe in the one whom the Father has sent. We see that in John 6. These people believed, and it was the end of the law for them. Now, some will say, well, that doesn't mean it's the end of the law in general because it's only for a specific group. It's for those who find righteousness through faith. But let me ask you, how many in here want to find righteousness by faith? Well, of course we do. And so for us, what is the law or what is, well, it's the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law. Now, there's a debate as to what the end means. The end is telos. It can mean goal. Uh, This past Wednesday, in apologetics, I gave a teleological argument. The idea is if you show design or a goal to the creation, there must be a designer. Okay, now, some argue that, well, all that's being stated here is that Christ is the goal of the law. Now, that's certainly part of it, but the primary argument that's made here is that if you find righteousness in Christ, it's the end of the law. You don't go back. At the end of the day, you are either going to sever yourself from the law or from Christ. It's either or. Now, notice here in verse 5, he says, For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. That's a citation from Leviticus 18, verse 5. Now, was it a hypothetical that if you could obey the law perfectly that you could have salvation? Yes, but it was never revealed as a possibility because of human sinfulness. And so if anyone would say, you know what, I think I'll try that option, it was explicitly shown in the scriptures that it wasn't a viable option. But it's a hypothetical that's designed to show us we can't do it. Oh, Adam's got a question. Yep. So that way, everything that you say can and will be held against you. I was <laughs> uh, You're saying all of this and everything
2: that comes to mind is that Jesus states that the two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yes. And then the other part that comes to my mind is the rich owner that comes to Jesus and says, I have kept all of the Ten Commandments. What can I do to get into heaven? Right. And Where I'm tying all of it together is that you can fulfill the Ten Commandments by doing what Jesus said, loving everybody and loving God, because it fits every spot. If you love God, you won't use his name in vain. You'll go to Sabbath. He'll he'll be the only one. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from him. You're not going to kill him. You're not going to cheat with his wife, all of these things. So Jesus is saying the fulfillment of the new law is fulfilling the old law, but also... The way you're able to do that is through him by, by taking away that, that negative side of the old law, the Abrahamic law.
0: Yeah, let me go back to that. Um, let me answer that, Adam. Think about that example. Yeah, great question, great comments. Um, think about the rich young ruler. Remember he says, good teacher, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And right away, what does Jesus ask him? Well, why do you call me good? For God alone is good. Now here I think that sets up the irony in the passage is what? Jesus is God. And so when he asked the man to sell all that he has, the man isn't as good as he thinks he is, is he? He's deluded himself into thinking that he's kept all those things. And so to get the man's attention, Jesus says, one thing you lack, go sell all you have and sell it to the poor and follow me. And the man wouldn't do it because he doesn't recognize who Jesus is. And so it ends up being a faith issue, isn't it? So that man wasn't as good as he thought he was. But you're right, in the sense of the law, the law is fulfilled in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the whole weight of the law and the prophets are on that. And what we see in the New Covenant is that if we bear one another's burdens and we love our brothers and sisters, we're fulfilling the law of Christ. But the the point here is that faithfulness in Christ, or faith, I should say, in Christ, trusting in him, it's the end of the law. Because now you have in Christ righteousness and atonement that you desperately need. And you couldn't have through the law. Yep. Yeah. Rich. I've been trying
3: to think of what is the big attraction of going back to the Old Testament law. I mean, why in the world? It's like, right. man, I've got a BMW, but I've got this horrible Pinot <laughs> that's blowing up all the time in the garage. I'm going to go back to that thing. Yeah. And uh, um, <laughs> I think <clears throat> my brother very much into this, so it's, it's near and dear to me because okay. it's, it's, a, it's a problem in my family. And I'm looking at that verse in Romans 10 right up here, and it says they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Could it possibly be that the righteousness of God is so scary and so frightening that they want to dumb it down and just say, hey, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this by doing such and such and such, and they feel good about themselves thinking, man, I keep the Sabbath. Yeah. You know, I don't need pork, so it's all cool. Right. You know, I can, I can do this. Is that, is right. that it? Maybe just to... You know, to negate the, 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 the fear of putting themselves underneath the righteousness of God?
0: Yeah, I think that's ingrained within the human heart to have pride, that you can somehow earn salvation. Think about Genesis 11. You have the Tower of Babel built. They'll make a name for themselves, and they'll build their own way to heaven. You see it rebuilt, again, in the book of Revelation. The building of Babylon is not only real, but it's also symbolic of man's attempt to earn salvation, so God tears that down, and He what does He do? Is He gives us the New Jerusalem, right? So I, I think the point that you're making is yes. I think people are arrogant; they try to be justified, thinking that they can be justified by their own merit, and that's why we see pride comes before the fall, doesn't it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, Brian.
2: Um, some of the things on my mind are maybe a little different here. Uh, what about what are we grafted into, and in Ephesians, these are the things I'm thinking about here, so help me out yeah in Ephesians also we see Paul telling us to stop thinking of yourselves as Gentiles, think of yourselves as Israel, yeah, you know and and then Paul also makes arguments about us being grafted into, so how do we yep. reconcile that with? the beginning part of what you've presented here
0: yeah well well, good question Brian Um, we'll see oftentimes in the scriptures for instance when you read first Peter first Peter will often liken unbelievers to Gentiles Um, we're often referred to as the people of God a royal priesthood these are terms that were used of Israel um, a holy priesthood a royal nation or holy nation a royal priesthood so, these are terms that are often used of Israel. But on the one hand, we have to say, yes, we are the people who have favor with God. We are the ones who are under this new covenant. But at the same time, and we're grafted into the promises given to Israel, Romans chapter 11. But at the same time, we have to say, you know what, there really is a promise for the literal ethnic nation of Israel that will come. And so, the only people that have a part in that coming kingdom are those who believe in Jesus Christ now. Okay, so, for instance, in Romans eleven twenty six, Paul says, all Israel will be saved. And then just two verses later, he says, well, they are the enemies of the gospel for your sake. Okay, so how, if that Israel there in verse 26 is just believers, Jews, and Gentiles, well, then how could they be an enemy of the gospel? So what we have to affirm is that there are imageries, or, you know, images used in the New Testament where the church is likened to Israel, And unbelievers are likened to Gentiles. But it's a metaphor. We're not actually Israel. We're not actually that nation where that kingdom is coming. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah.
1: Also, it's important to realize that in Romans 11, when it's talking about grafted into the root, it's talking about the patriarchs.
0: Yeah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It's not
1: talking about Moses. It doesn't say we're grafted into Moses. It says we're grafted into the the patriarchs. And that's different than Moses. And so in Galatians... Paul, in correcting their attachment to Moses, goes back to Abraham. Yes. He does the same thing in Romans.
0: Great point, Bob. Yeah, that's really helpful to your question because the grafting in isn't to the Mosaic law. It's always to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is the root in in Romans chapter 11. So, yeah, does that help? Yeah. So, the Abrahamic covenant is one that is seen as fulfilled and brought in forever, as it were, in the new covenant. So, yep. see, I'm just going to keep going for the sake of time. I just got a few more slides that I want to hit. Um, let me get into asking the question Did the whole Mosaic law cease? This is Ephesians 2 12 through 15. I'll be asking you a question here in just a moment. Notice Paul asks, or I'm sorry, Paul says this. He says, Remember that you were at the time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. He's talking to Gentile believers. Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Very loaded there. Verse 14, he says, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. Think about warfare there, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one man. Notice here in verse 14, he says, For he himself is our peace, and he made both groups into one, and he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. That term barrier, Mesothoiken, is often used in the culture of the day for a balustrade. In fact, it was used of the balustrade in the temple that separated Jews from Gentiles. Remember I showed you that in a sermon maybe six months ago? I had a picture of the temple in Jerusalem, and there's this balustrade. It's like a little wall. And Gentiles couldn't go beyond that point. They couldn't approach God. They were relegated to the court of the Gentiles. I think in Paul's mind, he sees that as the law. The law functions like that balustrade. It kept Jews and Gentiles apart. So when he talks about the dividing wall, notice right here he's mentioning the dividing wall. What is that dividing wall? It's the Mosaic law. Now, how did he bring the Jew and Gentile together in establishing peace and making us one people? Well, he did it, it says, by abolishing in his flesh, the implication would be on the cross, the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Now, notice the phrase law of commandments commandments contained in ordinances. That's the Mosaic law. Now, does anyone here see a hint of a threefold division of the Mosaic law? Do we see any hint that there's a moral part, a civil part, or a ceremonial part that was the problem? Paul never alludes to that. It was the Mosaic law, the laws and commandments and ordinances. Now, to be fair, many of those ordinances that separated Jew and Gentile had to do with the ceremonial aspects of the law or the civil aspects. You have the regulations about the dietary food that they had to eat. Jews and Gentiles were separated because of that. Sabbath keeping. That separated Jews and Gentiles. And so one of the functions of the law to preserve the lineage of Messiah was it separated Jews and Gentiles to preserve the Davidic line. But once Christ the seed has come, that's no longer necessary. And so he broke down the wall. Now, if you and I want to go to legalism where we take commandments that God has never instituted, we're building that wall up. If we're going to go back to the Mosaic Covenant in any way, we're building the value straight again. So don't build the value straight. You don't go back to the Mosaic Covenant, and you certainly don't go back to laws that you and I have concocted in our own minds. All right? One thing I want you to turn, turn your Bibles to Galatians 5.3. Let's ask the question, where is this threefold division that the Westminster Confession is so dogmatic about? That you have a division between the moral, civil, and ceremonial law. Galatians 5.3, I want to show you that Paul sees it as a unified whole. Galatians 5, 3, Paul says, I testify to every man who receives circumcision, so there's the ceremonial law, receives circumcision that he is under obligation to what? Keep the whole law. So here Paul sees the law as a unified whole. So where is this division between the moral, civil, and ceremonial law? And, of course, we're differing with that, aren't we? We're saying, no, it's seen as a unified whole. But if you differ with that, then it seems as if you're labeled an antinomian. Well, we're not antinomians. What we're trying to do is to understand the Bible as it was inspired by the Spirit. Okay? It's it's seen as a unified whole. So, if we go back to the Mosaic Covenant, in any part, we're building the balustrade. If we go to legalism and tell people to do something that they were never commanded to do in any covenant, we're certainly building the balustrade. Okay, let me go on here to show you another passage. This is very important. Writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 8 7 through 8 he says for if the first covenant let me just establish this let me stop here the first covenant we know is the Mosaic covenant I couldn't fit verse 9 on here but verse 9 in Hebrews 8 cites Jeremiah 31 that we'd already read that the old covenant that God made with the fathers as he brought them out of Egypt that's the Mosaic covenant he says for if the first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion sought for a second that's the new covenant Verse 8, he says, for finding fault with them. Now, let me stop there. With them could either be the people or there's some debate as it could be literally for he found fault with it. There are some textual variations there. So, either way, there was fault found with either the covenant, the first covenant, or the people. But let's think about it for just a moment. The problem with the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was really a problem with the people anyway. Because the law was weak because of the flesh. Okay, so either way, it goes back to humanity's problem. So finding fault with them, he says, I have to skip to verse 13, he says, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. So the Mosaic covenant's been made obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old, is ready to disappear. Now again, the writer of Hebrews says that the first covenant has been made obsolete. Does he give you any hints as to, well, there was only portions of that covenant that were made obsolete? No it's the whole thing. Turn your bibles again one more time here to James chapter 2 verse 10. James also sees the law as a whole. James 2:10. James says for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has been guilty of all. So James, Paul the biblical writer see it as a whole, why does Westminster Confession see it as three different parts? It's not what the biblical author said. And again, we have to say, are we going to go by the creeds or are we going to go by the scriptures? Because there's times where they do differ. Okay? Let me just show you, I'll wrap it up with this slide. Two points I want to leave you with. The whole Mosaic law has been fulfilled and terminated in Christ Jesus. Okay, so what we have here is the Mosaic law is terminated. It has been fulfilled in Christ. And the Abrahamic covenant then is fulfilled in, in Christ. And so he brings that promise that was given to Abraham that the seed would come from him to fruition. He's come. He's come on the scene. And therefore, number two is absolutely necessary. We are now under the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.21. Let me just cite to you Romans 4.13. Paul said, for the promise to Abraham and to his seeds that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And that's exactly what Christ is fulfilling here as he abrogates and fulfills the Mosaic Covenant. You and I are under the law of Christ. We are not antinomians. We have a lawgiver, Christ and his apostles. And I want you all to turn to this sheet. This sheet was from an article that Mike's wife had given me, a robin. And at the end of it, it just gives us a representative example of all the commandments that we have under the New Covenant. And the reason I want everyone to see this is you see after you look at, look at duties towards God, duties toward God, positive and negative, duties towards human beings, positive and negative. On the backside, duties towards self, positive and negative. When you read through that list, you can certainly see that by being under the new covenant, you are not antinomian. You are under the law of Christ. And I think it's just a misunderstanding of scripture that people would say, well, if you don't go back to the Mosaic law... You're somehow an antinomian. When Luther talked about antinomianism, his reference during the Reformation to antinomianism was to those who were denying not the law of Moses but any authority under the law of Christ. That's how the term originated. We are not antinomian at gospel of grace. We are under the law of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is exciting. We have a better covenant with better promises. Let's not go back. Yeah, Cindy. Hold on. We'll get you the microphone here.
1: (laughs) We've got to close.
0: Would would you address the um, tearing of the veil in the temple when Jesus died to these covenants? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great question. So we know that, like, for instance, when you read Leviticus 16, you talk about the Day of Atonement. There's only one man who can go into the Holy of Holies, that's the area in the temple where you have the altar, you have the actual Shekinah glory of God, you have the, uh, the propitiation seat, the mercy seat. Well, only once a year could the high priest go in there. And that was after making atonement for himself. So he was the only one that could draw near, is the phrase. Yeah. And so he was the only one that could enter in. Well, after Christ dies, we see that that temple veil was torn. And I think the implication is it was the temple veil separating, I believe, the holy of holies from the most holy place. And so the implication then is now, by faith in Christ, everyone has access to the throne of God. I think that's the rich symbology there. It's no longer one man once a year. It's all of us have the opportunity to approach the throne of grace and find help in our time of need, as it says in Hebrews. Yeah, very rich imagery. Thanks for bringing that up. Yep. Um, well, I tell you what, next time we come back to this, we're going to be focusing on what role does the Mosaic Law, if any, have for the believer during the New Covenant. So we had to kind of do the heavy lifting here. Now we're going to go on and kind of look at sanctification and what role, if any, that the law, the Mosaic Law in particular plays. So with that, let me just close with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to Realize the significance of what you've done for us in Christ and the significance and beauty of what you've done by your Holy Spirit, that we're no longer baptized into Moses, that we are baptized into Christ. We're identified with him and he with us. And forevermore, we will not be separated. We're not going back to Egypt. We're also not going back to the old covenant. I pray, Lord, that these are truths that would weigh heavily upon my brothers and sisters, that we would remember these things in the weeks and months and years to come, that we would have unity in the gospel by your spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen.